Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and as most of my listeners know, I love New York. The program is a weekly show about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, uh, we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some history here in New York, about half of them, believe it or not, the history of women activists in the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn and New York, African-American history. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. Believe it or not, they have been here for 201 years. We've explored the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way. And we explored the city's greatest train stations uh, and even had an episode on basketball. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're having a special show about landmarks, but specifically saving cultural landmarks and specifically the efforts to save two structures in Brooklyn, which was its own city at the time that these buildings were built. Um, On past shows, we've talked about efforts to landmark buildings in New York. Uh, In January, it was episode 51, uh, the show about New York's greatest train stations, we talked about how the destruction of the original Penn Station led to the New York landmark law that we have now and the subsequent and successful efforts to save New York's other great train station, which is Grand Central, as well as countless other buildings, including some of the best-known buildings in the city, large and small. Less glamorous and less sensational, though, but no less important to preserving essential places of the city and even uh, some of our national history are buildings that most people, even most New Yorkers, have never heard about, but which are also vitally important in preserving in order to protect our heritage and our cultural and even our political history. Today, we're going to talk about two specific buildings, one at 99 Ryerson Street in Fort Greene, and the second, 227 Duffield Street in downtown Brooklyn. They're unassuming structures. Most people walking by would not have any idea of their importance and who may have lived there and what may have happened at these structures and how the people who lived and worked there played important roles in our local and national history. Uh, Local history in those days would have been the city of Brooklyn, not New York, because uh, Brooklyn didn't become part of New York City until 1898. Brooklyn, by the way, was the third largest city in the United States until it became part of New York in the consolidation. Uh, 99 Ryerson Street is the only building still standing in New York where Walt Whitman lived, and 227 Duffield was the locus not only of the abolitionist movement before the Civil War, but also of the civil rights movement that coalesced right after the Civil War. I'm pleased to have two guests on the show today who have played an important role in trying to bring landmark status to these important buildings and who have made it an important goal of their work. Uh, And timely it is because this morning there was a hearing at the Landmarks Preservation Commission for one of the buildings we're going to talk about tonight, 227 Duffield. We're not only going to learn about those efforts to landmark the buildings, but also about the lives of the people who lived and worked there, who they were, what they did and the influence they had on our society and our culture. I'm pleased to welcome two guests. My first guest is Karen Carboner. Karen is a Whitman Scholar and teaches at New York University. She is the winner of the Klug Fellowship at the Library of Congress and a Fulbright Scholar. She has published widely on Whitman, including an edition of Leaves of Grass, two audiobooks on Whitman's life and influence a book introducing Whitman's poetry to children, and a collaboration with illustrator Brian Selznick on Live Oak with Moss, which is a new edition of Whitman's secret same-sex love poems. She was the co-curator with collector Susan Tain of Poet of the Body, New York's Walt Whitman, a major exhibition at New York's York's Grolier Club that was in 2019, and Karen's the author of a book of the same title. She's the president and founding member of the Walt Whitman Initiative, a nonprofit organization serving as an organizing center for cultural activism 
including efforts to land Mark Whitman's last standing house in New York at 90. Our second guest is Raoul Rothblatt. He is a longtime advocate of 227 Duffield, the last home owned by abolitionists left standing on Abolitionist Place in downtown Brooklyn. Raoul's originally from San Francisco. He moved to Brooklyn in 1993. As co-president of the PS99, I'm sorry, PS9 Brooklyn Parent Organization, he led the efforts to rename the school after Sarah Smith Garnett, who we will be talking about tonight. She was the first African-American woman principal in New York and co-founder of the first African-American suffrage club. He is the co-founder of Five Boroughs to Freedom, a new organization working to create awareness of New York City's long support for slavery. That's busts some people's view of New York before the Civil War, but we'll talk about that. And to celebrate the people who resisted. He is working with the Major Owens family. Owens was a former congressman who represented a district in Brooklyn to increase recognition of his contributions to the civil rights movement. He's presently the director of community affairs for New York State Senator Jesse Hamilton. He also plays cello with Kakande, a West African band, and bass with Aletva. I hope I pronounced that right. I don't speak Magyar, a Hungarian folk band. Karen and Raul, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for having us. Perfect timing. Before we talk about the background and the efforts that you've undertaken to uh, landmark these these buildings, let's talk a little bit about you yourselves. Karen, you're originally from New York, aren't you? I am a born and raised New Yorker. Um, in fact, I am a member of the Society of Old Brooklynites. You've got to be Brooklyn born to be in that society. That is the only club that Whitman ever joined. So very proud Brooklynite. I got to join that. I don't live in Brooklyn now, but I was born in Brooklyn, spent most of my life there, and I just had my 60th birthday. So uh, <laughs> I think I do classify as old at this point. So I you are, I, I'm not sure if old means the Brooklynite themselves or, or Brooklyn, but you are, you are certainly eligible to join. Oh. Raul, you're from San Francisco, another of the United States' amazing cities. People who migrate from coast to coast usually go from east to west, but you came in the other direction. What brought you to New York and to Brooklyn specifically? I originally came here to study musical theater composition. So I got a master's at NYU uh, at the at Tisch School of the Arts. Um, but I, I was I kind of came to New York at a low point for musical theater, and I uh, went off and started doing much more uh, uh, world music at that point. Uh, and uh, around that time is when I started playing the uh, uh, Hungarian folk music with uh, Eletva. Hmm. Karen, when did you decide to make the study of 19th century American literature and culture and the history behind it your life's work? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I think there is such a thing as a Whitmaniac, right? Or a Whitmanite, someone, he, he has such a passionate following. And I fell into it quite late. I was already in graduate school at Columbia and I wound up in a uh, Whitman and Dickinson class. And I guess just like the rest of his followers heard this direct, confident, uh, and, and at the same time, very personal voice speaking to me. And as a... Um, my, my family was working class. I think, you know, Whitman's down-to-earth sensibility, his background, uh, the way that he talks to people and what he talks about just hit me very hard in graduate school. So uh, that's that's when it took off for me. But it's, it's taken several years to develop this sort of cultural activism that I'm doing now. I love that term, Whitmania. It reminds me of Trudeau mania, <laughs> you know, mania around someone who people, you know, love for some reason um was there anything what what was it to you about whitman that set him apart from from other writers and other thinkers who who were influential at that time well i think probably some of the things that bring me to this show you know as a as a new yorker i was really interested in this oddball urban poet in the middle of the 19th century i'd actually gone to columbia to study the romantic poets and they you know, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, they're, they love the outdoors. The city is the place of disgrace, right? It's about moving out to the wild. And here is this poet that takes it the other way, uh, comes from Long Island when he's just four years old, settles in New York, and in Brooklyn specifically, sees uh, a beginning of, of American poetry, which which he accomplishes. Wow. Um 
I, I have to make one correction, and I should have known this because I'm I'm kind of a political junkie, and I know people in politics. Senator Jesse Hamilton is retired; <laughs> he's no longer. I just found that out. So apologies. Um, some of my friends who work in the Senate would kill me for uh, having 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 made that. Oh my mistake. God, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but Raul, before I ask you about your efforts with historic preservation, how did you get engaged in working in community affairs for a state senator? Well, um, I was, um, I kind of left the political world uh, and it was actually Atlantic Yards that the battle, I live in Prospect Heights. And so um, it was really a sense that if I don't get involved, nobody else would. If, you know, it was really up to our kind of uh, uh, oddball group of activists. And so it, it, it gave me a sense of kind of personal responsibility and very soon after that, I met uh, Mama Joy, Joy Chattel. Um, so the fight, uh, at that point, there was two battles against eminent domain abuse. So um, the New York State was taking property, private, public, uh, and other, uh, to build Atlantic Yards. And they were also taking various properties to build a, this small park in uh, downtown Brooklyn on, on Duffield. Which I should add, this was in 2003 under the Bloomberg administration. They never finished. It's still an empty lot of land. So um, the, I, this, the fight against eminent domain kind of pulled me in. And also Mama Joy pulled me in because she was just so loving and welcoming. And, you know, she gave everybody a role to play. And I had a role to play, uh, which was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think... Um, is something I'm just so grateful for, so lucky for. Mm. Well, let's let's go to the buildings themselves. Let let's go back to Whitman and 99 Ryerson Street in Fort Greene. Um, Karen, how did Whitman wind up in Brooklyn? What what brought him and his family there? Because he's from Long Island originally. Six generations of Long Islanders. They were the Whitmans were here for a very long time since the 1600s. They had been very successful farmers. Um, and if you go out to the Whitman birthplace in West Hills, right outside of Huntington on Long Island, you can see a house that his father built. Um, and I think that's really where it started because uh, his dad had, when he was younger, gone into New York City and basically interned for an uncle in a Venetian blind factory. So Whitman Sr. got a taste for carpentry and uh, designing buildings, you know, rural architecture that kind of went over, especially when Long Island had a, a hard time because uh, in 1816, there was something called the year without a summer. So crops never ripened. It never wow. got hot enough that year to, to sort of everything come to full fruition. So for years after that, farmers had a really hard time. So mm. just putting two and two together, I would say that uh, Whitman Sr. left the family farm. He really left six generations of, of Whitmans out there. In 1823, when his second son, Walt, was just four years old, and because he saw in Brooklyn a building boom, right? A chance to kind of like capitalize on his carpentry skills. And I, I think Walt inherited some of his father's maverick independence, right? This was like a new place, this incredible city. Um, and... Uh, they settled there when Whitman was four, as I said. And so Whitman's New York City years basically go from 1823 to 1862 when he leaves for the Civil War front. So probably a, it was probably a prescient business move or uh, to be because Brooklyn had started. It actually in the, uh, the waterfront boomed a lot after the opening of the Erie Canal. But the canal was being built in the early 1820s. So the anticipation was that there would be. A whole lot more business. And I, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing that there were uh, investors and people who were building up businesses that would have supported uh, shipping and docks, which we're going to talk about uh, a little bit later in the program as well. Um, right. And even like internally, you know, like uh, you're, you're talking about externally with the, with the Erie Canal, which is right. But then, you know, the Croton Reservoir was developed during Whitman's early years in New York. And there was such a momentum behind the city. I'm fond of telling my students that Whitman and New York came of age together. You know, those 1840s, 50s, 60s years really saw the ripening of New York into a metropolis. And that's exactly when Whitman is right there enjoying the opera, wandering the streets, 
uh, there must have been such an energy in the air at that time. Mm. And of course, it's Brooklyn, which the three of us all love. So we have to say yes. Um, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about landmarking two important buildings in Brooklyn with Karen Carboner and Raul Rothblatt. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York and our special episode about saving cultural landmarks, uh, specifically uh, two structures in Brooklyn. My guests are Karen Carboner and Raul Rothblatt. Uh, Karen, Walt Whitman was gay. Um, how did his sexual orientation influence not only his writing, but also who he was as an activist? I don't think they had the term activist in those days, but he really was an activist. He was an activist. Uh, I, I would call him the first LGBTQ plus activist that we had. He's also very much a neighborhood activist because I know that you know also that he basically founded uh, Brooklyn's first official park, Fort Greene Park. But as a, you know, it's he he lived at a time when the word homosexual was not in common parlance. That was invented in. 1860s Germany and kind of slowly drifted over here. So it's actually a Hungarian term, if I could jump in. It oh, Hungarian, and, and as a way to um, to end the uh, uh, demonization, to the home, uh, it was supposed to make it less um, less of an insult. So, right, I'll, I'll look that went up. I'll look that one up. No, thank you, Raul. I know I appreciate that. That's uh, fascinating because it also, as soon as you have a term like that, it it creates a group, right, an identity. And a lot of Whitman's writings through the 1850s, when he was living in New York and actively cruising uh, on the streets of Manhattan, frequenting a, a bar called Foff's Beer Cellar down near Bleecker and Broadway, and meeting men every night. I mean, this was a time of incredible self-exploration for him. When you look at photos of Whitman through time, we've got some early photos of him when he's still in his 30s, early 30s, and he's looking um, very conventional and traditional, traditional beard, uh, very dandy-like outfit. And then in 1855, when he produces Leaves of Grass, something happens to him, right? The shirt collar gets loosened up. He's looking directly at the camera. Um, And we think that somewhere in there, he had his first homosexual experience somewhere, um, maybe New Orleans. But it was an incredibly important part of Whitman's identity, something that puts him on the outside of mainstream culture. And he used that position quite often in his poetry. So we're talking about a poet who never 
had the conventional Victorian family, right? He never got married. He never had children. Um, saw everything a little bit from the outside. Um, but I feel like at the same time was able to identify with so many groups that were not put into poem poetry. So as, as he writes about in, in Song of Myself, he's speaking for all the long, dumb voices, people who have not had voice before. And uh, being gay before the word homosexual is invented really put him at that spot. Um, he wrote many of the poems um, in Leaves of Grass that were published in Leaves of Grass. And by the way, there wasn't one publication. There were, there were many printings of it, many different editions. He updated it. He wrote it at uh, 99 Ryerson Street. What kind of impact did the publication of the first edition have in 1855? Oh, geez. I think Walt would have loved more of an impact. <laughs> the book really didn't sell. Uh, remember, he... Goes to, he goes to Brooklyn with his dad, and he's a sometime editor, reporter, but he's also a carpenter. He's building houses. This is not a poet. So when he publishes Leaves of Grass, this collection of 12 poems in 1855, there is no precedent. He, he dropped out of school at age 11. Um, you know, he, he doesn't have any mentors. He has no money. And yet he's putting out this book, Leaves of Grass, in the hopes of changing American poetry. And the book flops. And actually, the only reason that it started taking off is that Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was the, the don of American literature at that moment, writes him an incredible letter, said to be the most important letter in American literature, and basically says to Whitman, I greet you at the beginning of a great career, which is pretty amazing because Emerson was a bit of a prude and later retracted his fondness for Whitman and told Whitman to to tone it down a little bit. Mm. But that letter, I think, put Walt over the edge. And as you said, he, he kept on republishing Leaves of Grass throughout his life. So the next year in 1856, mm. he comes out with the second edition of Leaves of Grass. It's got 35 more poems, including Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, the great Brooklyn poem. And throughout his life, he keeps on putting out this book called Leaves of Grass, but with more poems and the older poems edited they're always personalized and put up to date with politics and dates. He writes about his weight. He writes about his, uh, you know, his, uh, his age. Everything continues to get updated until 1892 when he produces that last so-called deathbed edition. Hmm. And that's uh, when he was living in Camden, New Jersey, I think, at the end of his life. Um, right. Whitman also want to remind our listeners, uh, he was a reporter at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, known since then as the Brooklyn Eagle, and he was fired partly because of his abolitionist views. We're going to talk about that a little bit with our second guest when we talk about Duffield Street. Um, Karen, Whitman moved to Washington and, and took up a very, very good cause that really helped other human beings. You want to talk about that? Yeah, in uh, late December 1862, he got wind that his younger brother, George, had been wounded down at the, in the Civil War. Whitman himself was too old to fight and besides was a pacifist and would have never agreed to do it. But when he went down to look for George and he saw the devastation and the soldiers that were wounded, he decided to stay. Uh, and that really marks the end of his New York years. He moves to Washington. He takes up, of all things, a job as a clerk in a, in a, a desk job in an office in Washington. And during the evenings, he goes into the hospital tents that are set up all around Washington, D.C., and he tends to the soldiers, uh, famously writing hundreds and hundreds of letters for soldiers that are disabled um, or don't know how to write to their families and um, composes these poems that were in a collection called Drum Taps, greatest Civil War poems, greatest war poems ever written that don't even feature the war. They are about the wounded. They are about the hearts that are broken, the families that are broken. It's the first time we get war poetry that doesn't just glorify the, the fighting and the war front. So he winds up volunteering as a Civil War nurse and uh, one of my students just wrote a paper on this and said Whitman was really a therapist, which is true because he sat by the sides of these, the bedsides of these young men who often really didn't know what they were doing there, had been called away from their families uh, and uh, tended to them mentally, physically, 
uh, and spiritually. He, he brought them things, last requests. He'd go around with little notebooks that you can now see at the Library of Congress, where he would note the bed number and the illness of the of the man that was in there and the last request, whorehound candy, ice cream. And he would spend his money when he came back and he would bring those things into the tents with stamps and paper to write the letters. Mm. So it's just about as close to sainthood as you can imagine. And actually, I think about it a lot today with the corona crisis and the idea of, of really someone who goes in there, right, who practices what he preaches, doesn't just write about it from the sidelines, but actually just goes down there and does some good. I think we really need another Walt Whitman uh, these days. Well, there's another thing that he did, but before I, I that, I want to remind, well, uh, mention that uh, Whitman lived in 30 places uh, in the New York area, and 99 Ryerson is the only one that's still standing, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to get a landmark. Um, one of the things that's not well known about, about Whitman was his attitude about embracing something about the United States that to me is so important and so beautiful and really essential to our national character, and that's immigration. And he also embraced immigration at a time when many people were against immigration and immigrants, not only in the U.S., but in the cities of New York and Brooklyn. Um, how was his poetry and his activism influenced by his appreciation for differences of people and where they came from? Well, he's living in the right place, first of all, right? If he would have stayed out on Long Island, there wasn't much going on out there. The same families rotating, you know, leaving, coming. But when he got to Brooklyn the world opened up to him and he would write again in these little notebooks, everything that he would see. Um, I was reading about the other day. A lot of people don't know that around where Fort Greene Park is, there was actually an Irish ghetto there, probably not the only one in New York, right? The Irish were everywhere. Um, but Including in, the, in Vinegar Hill, uh, which, uh, you know, further, further down slope. And uh, I, that, that's interesting. I'll have to look that one up. And I was just reading about this particular ghetto near Fort Greene Park where they, they lived in shacks. You know, it was really horrible, right? Animals running around everywhere. Um, and Whitman wrote in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle about the, the life that he saw there, right? The, the variety of people and the, the generosity of families, um, the fact that they were community building even in these ghettos. So Whitman, uh, you know, some people just have um, a much more open sensibility. And Whitman came to New York, I guess, prepared to embrace the masses that way. And in his poetry, writes quite openly um, about all these different people. I'm reminded of I Sing the Body Electric, which is a great poem to look at um, if you're thinking about uh, equality, not just of people around the world, but also of the black person. Um, and in that poem, he actually imagines a, a black man up on a block at auction. And he says, and probably based on his trip to New Orleans, where that was the first time Whitman could have seen anything like this. Wow. And in I Sing the Body Electric, he writes, I help the auctioneer. You know, the slovin does not know half know his business. And he starts talking about how priceless that human body is up there um, and comparing that body to white bodies to yellow bodies to red bodies and then ultimately even puts in a statement for black nationhood in 1855 and says to the reader what might you discover if you look back through the centuries like who was your granddaddy so uh, in his poetry, Whitman was incredibly open-hearted and outspoken about um, all different races. And really, I think I credit it again to being in Brooklyn and to having Manhattan across the way, uh, just being exposed to the world. And such, so he gave us so much and what a great man he was for us. That's why it's important to, to landmark the only place that is still here that he lived in in New York, but also where he wrote uh, many of the poems that are in editions of Leaves of Grass. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Karen Carboner and Raul Rothblatt about landmarking, attempts to landmark two lesser known buildings in Brooklyn, but that are important for our cultural history. We'll be back in a moment.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day. We are back and you're back to Rediscovering New York. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give Chris a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we continue our conversation, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out, over, within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, I want to move on to our second property on the special program about efforts to landmark cultural building, buildings that have cultural and historical significance for us in New York. And specifically, that's 227 Duffield Street. It's about a mile away from Whitman's old residence at 99 Ryerson Street. Um, but it's a little different. Anyone who knows these streets in downtown Brooklyn, unlike uh, Fort Greene, parts of which really haven't changed since the 19th century, Uh, This part of downtown Brooklyn is very different now. It's very built, very highly built, lots of developments. Um, A lot of the area went up in the, the, the first part of the 20th century, but there is a little old building right there on 227 Duffield Street. Uh, It was built around 1850. Um, Raul, before we explore the building itself, let's talk a little about the times politically and also in literary writings in Brooklyn at the time. Um, There were some interesting things going on, also having to do with immigration uh, around the time of 1848 in Brooklyn and New York, weren't there? Uh, Yeah. 
this was an amazing time of revolution. Um, 1848 um, in the United States, people know the Seneca, um, the Women's Convention in Seneca Falls, um, which was considered the launch of the women's movement. In Europe, it was a period of revolution, and a lot of uh, a lot of immigrants came over. Um, I, I tried to make a distinction between Hungarian and German at one point, but um, there were, at that point, it, there wasn't a distinction because at that point, Hungary would have been part of the Habsburg Empire. So there were Hungarian immigrants who came, uh, a few Hungarian, there were Germans, there was all sorts of uh, a wave of immigrants. And um, this was also, you have to think of, um, we're just right soon after or kind of during the Industrial Revolution. So all of society, societal norms were changing at that point. The whole, um, the whole agrarian economy was just being replaced by a more industrial era. And that had such implications um, for what people could also conceive of as what would be possible. Um, I, um, you know, we were talking about the Truesdales uh, today, I testified about the social movements that they were involved in. Yes, they were involved in the um, in the um, anti-slavery abolitionist movements, but they're also involved in prohibition. And when you think of it, here is an idea like let's change the way people live. You know, we why do why do people why do husbands have to get drunk and beat up their wives? We can change that. You know, it, it that was nationalism was also a progressive idea at that point. When you think about it, you're you're fighting the kings and queens. They were the 0.1% at the time. So, no, we're going to have uh, a society based on our common interests. And, you know, that became what uh, nationalism, which is kind of considered anti-liberal these days. So, uh, and then you also had the debates over slavery going on. You had the Fugitive Slave Act, which, um, you know, right now everyone's talking about defunding the police and and all of those debates. But um, this one is, in a sense, a much more deadly conversation because um, at that point, any African-American, anybody colored, as they were called at that time, could have been sent back to, uh, to the South as a slave. And um, and that was- Wasn't the first arrest of the uh, as a result of the Fugitive Slave Act, didn't that actually take place in New York City or yes. in Brooklyn? Um, it, was in, uh, it was in Williamsburg, uh, James Hamlet. Um, and this was a big cause at, the, at that time, raising money to get his freedom. I, I believe it was, uh, um, um, uh, but this was, yeah, this was very much a, a, a local fight as well. And the, the idea of having Southern slavery um, impacted the life in, in the North. Um, New York, it has to be repeated over and over again, was a huge supporter of the Southern slave system. Um, the Fernando Wood in 1861, the mayor of New York City, wanted to secede. At that point, New York City was a separate, uh, separate city, but he wanted to uh, start a new country which would have included Brooklyn and Long Island. And a lot of Brooklyn leaders supported that because um, not only was the, fi the financial ties to the South important, but the ideological ties were, were strong too. Um, my daughter goes to Dock Street. What do you think was sold at Dock, uh, in those docks on Dock Street? It was, it was goods brought by enslaved Americans and trying to liberate themselves. And you would find that there would occasionally be a dead body that would that would show up on the on the on the docks of Brooklyn. So um, so at that time, you also had the founding of a lot of the black churches. Uh, Weeksville, uh, which is basically the largest free black community, was founded around 1838, intentionally with the idea of having a free black community. They um, New York. Uh, um, ended slavery in 1827, but we kept raising the bar for to vote. The, the suffrage requirements got tougher and tougher because of people like Tunis Bergen. Mm. So um, African-Americans had to find their own community where they could buy land. And that's what Weeksville was, was uh, um, founded on. Yeah, you know, New York is known now as, as such a, a liberal place, but so much of the city's economy was tied up 
uh, with the business of what the South was producing, you know, manufacturing, shipping, you know, ancillary business services, including financial services. In fact, uh, uh, New Yorkers uh, uh, did not support Abraham Lincoln in 1860. And George McClellan, who ran against them in 1864, actually got more votes in New York City and in Brooklyn than uh, Lincoln did, although New York State as a whole got uh, uh uh, went for Lincoln. Let's um, uh, uh, talk about abolitionists at 227 Duffield Street. What what role did the building play in having abolitionists there? Was um, uh, was there any underground railroad activity that that happened at 227 Duffield? So there was some debate about underground railroad activity, and you could say, oh, um, it was a secret activity. So the, there's not going to be a whole lot of documentation of it. But I also think um, it's not always clear what that was. I mean, if, if somebody was looking for a place for the night, you know, or if you just gave them dinner, would that, you know, would that make you part of the Underground Railroad? I think the lines are, we, we try to make these lines a little more um, clear than they would have been at the time. There were a lot of abolitionists who live on Duffield Street, um, and some of the members of Plymouth Church, um, which is in Brooklyn Heights, which in which is in Brooklyn Heights, not that far away. Uh, William Harned was one of a, a very fierce abolitionist who actually had a lot of influence on the Plymouth Church, and he lived right around there as well. Um, but. Um, we do know that there were, so Future 7 Duffield was on a block of houses built around that time, um, 1847 to 1850. They all had tunnels connecting them underneath. This is very well documented. This was on the maps at the time. And I was in a house today that had a tunnel in Fort yeah. Greene, adjacent to Fort Greene Park, that uh, had a tunnel that was blocked off, uh, uh, you know, sometime after the Civil War yeah. for that purpose. There's lots of reasons. I mean, a lot of this stuff is mysterious. We don't really know everything that went on there. Um, but there's very clear, if you go in the basement of 227 Duffield, you can see it's stone, big stones in one area, and then there's a brick thing. It's very, you can touch it, you can feel it. And, um, uh, and I mean, for me, actually, that kind of metaphor, I mean, it's Underground Railroad was, uh, was a marketing, uh, marketing label anyway at the time, but it was... It's also something that it catch, captures people's imagination. You can go into that basement and touch that. Um, the Truesdales were also involved in other things, like the, the free cotton movement. So they, uh, Thomas Truesdale sold cotton that did not uh, depend on slave labor. So, you know, there's many kind of angles to this. Mm. Um, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I want to fast forward to... After the Civil War, Raul, I mean, many Americans think of the civil rights movement being spawned after the Second World War, especially with the bus boycott in Montgomery in 1955, uh, after Rosa Rosa Parks uh, refused to sit in the back of the bus. But the beginning of the civil rights movement was actually much earlier. How did the abolitionist movement, especially that was based in Brooklyn and New York, turn into the civil rights movement after the war, after the Civil War? There were many movements at that time, um, and um, one movement, for instance, we talk about the NAACP is usually considered one of the early movements. There were movements before that as well, even within the black community, um, where at, today we were talking about some of the literary unions that, you know, this in the churches. The churches were very radical organizations in a lot of, a lot of cases, and they, they were very much organized politically. Um, the one group we were talking earlier uh, offline about the um, the suffragists, the first black woman suffrage organization was founded in Brooklyn in 1888, the Women's Loyal Union. So this was really one of the first um, black, very consciously black organizations based on civil rights that was in a lot of ways more radical than the NAACP, which started a few decades later. Um, there were other other things. So, and it's so complicated. I mean, the, the abolitionist movements had all sorts of splits between the Tappans and the Garrisonians, uh, the people who wanted to be more um, uh, uh, um, to spread Christianity through abolition, and then the women were not involved in, in the 1830s, and then they were involved. So, 
there were so many different strands, but certainly the women had a very strong voice there too. Uh, a lot of these early women's groups were also very strongly uh, abolitionists. And you had somebody like Frederick Douglass, who, who up, um, it was just the 4th of July and everyone was setting out this thing about how Frederick Douglass spoke about the 4th of July, how that didn't mean anything to African-Americans. He said this in front of a women's group in Rochester. So the connections between women's, women's rights and African-American rights goes back, you know, much into the 1830s, certainly. And probably before, you know, I, I don't know everything before that. Wow. All right. Fascinating. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Karen Carboner of the Walt Whitman Initiative and Raul Rothblatt of Five Boroughs to Freedom. We're going to talk specifically about efforts to landmark these two buildings after the break. We'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York in our special episode about trying to gain landmark status for cultural landmarks in New York, and specifically for two buildings in Brooklyn, 99 Ryerson Street, which is the only structure left in New York City where Walt Whitman lived, and 227 Duffield Street, which was a locus for abolitionists uh, before the Civil War and for the Civil Rights Movement afterward. Um, let's move on to efforts to landmark the buildings. I'm, I want to read uh, a section from um, the Landmark Preservation Commission. It says, to be designated an historic district by the New York City Landmark Preservation Commission, the proposed collection of buildings must represent at least one typical historic period of style, or have a distinct sense of place, and have a coherent streetscape. Um, why did, Karen, why did the Landmark Preservation Commission turn down 99 Ryerson for consideration of landmark status three years ago when it first considered it? Well, if we could show the viewers what it looks like, it, it, I wouldn't have to explain it. And if you guys have seen it, but it is, uh, it's covered with vinyl siding. Um, it has an additional story put on it in the late 19th century. So, for the Landmarks Preservation Commission, this building is out of step with the way that it looked when Whitman was in there. And uh, they also said that he didn't live there long enough uh, because Whitman probably lived in there for about a year. Um, of course, our take, the as, as people who would like to see this landmark, is that Whitman moved everywhere. This was sort of an economic thing, right? He had an alcoholic father who moved the family constantly as he built and then sold houses. Um, and, uh, I think it's also economics when you look at a place like 99 Ryerson mm -hmm. street, this is not a street where people, um, maybe know about historic preservation or, you know, have valued something like that over time. This building, much like 227 Duffield has changed and grown with the neighborhood and with the times. So it does not look like it 
is out of a 19th century storybook. It definitely looks like a working class Brooklyn house. Um, it's it's con- increasingly looking very odd where it is because that neighborhood is gentrifying quickly, which is another worry of ours. Just a couple of uh, houses down, there's a, a big nice condo going up on the corner of Myrtle and Ryerson. And anyone who's walked down um, Myrtle lately, you know that Myrtle going east is getting more and more gentrified. Uh, there's all sorts of new shopping there. It's it's just a really different neighborhood. Um, but the charm of the house and the reason that we would like to save it is like the same thing that happened when Emerson went to go see Whitman in November uh, 1855. And, you know, visitors like Thoreau came up to the door and they said, this looks like a mechanic's house, you know, sort of code word for a working class house. So for me and the activists that I work with, You know, we love this about the house. Uh, I I take my students there and I think just looking at it is a lesson that greatness can start anywhere, right? That that American poetry is actually born on the streets of working class Brooklyn. That house reflects that history uh, and and it it looks like it's been through a hard a hard time. Raul, much like your 227. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have very much a similar problem. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, I was about to ask you why the Landmark Preservation Commission yeah. uh, initially denied the application, but please, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, um, I think they were also uh, uh, subject to some political pressure, though they would never, might never mm-hmm. admit that. But um, there is a bias of the uh, the LPC against, you know, buildings that have been changed. And I, I think it ends up being that you we tend to landmark the fancier buildings. We we tend to landmark a certain class of uh, inhabitants and not the more working class families as well. We had a lot of the same problems. They you know they the building had been modified, uh, and so they you know is generally not uh, that's frowned down upon. Even though they are supposed to by law also consider social significance. So it was actually a big change when they landmarked Stonewall Inn and some uh, some buildings important to L- the LGBT movement. But then I think they were probably afraid of that because then everyone, everyone would say, well, if you could do that, then what about the abolitionists? What about Black exactly Lives Matter? Right. What about, you know, mm-hmm. dance hall, whatever? You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think they're very hesitant as, uh, as a, you know, kind of to save their bureaucratic... Uh, uh, you know, they, they have to deal with bureaucracy and legal challenges all the time. So if they open the door a little bit, you know, somebody else is going to push that a little bit more. Mm. Uh, but sometimes they, they take these things to um, absurd uh, lengths. There is, I think, a pre-revolutionary building in Staten Island, you know, built in the mid, uh, mid-1700s, but then it had an addition in the 1800s and so, no, it was no longer uh, in its original form, which is ridiculous because even the addition was, was you know, almost 200 years old. That, that would be like saying that the Morris Jamel Mansion, which is the oldest building in Manhattan, isn't genuine anymore because they added a, a section, you know, some years after the original house was constructed yeah. in 1765. Um, I want to ask one other question, but um, to be sure that we don't run out of time, I wanted to to give you an opportunity to uh, give the contact information for the for the two organizations. Uh, Karen, if someone wanted to get in touch with the Walt Whitman Initiative, how would they do that? And we would love for people to sign. We have a change.org petition to, to landmark the, we call it the Leaves of Grass House, since Whitman actually finished the first edition of Leaves of Grass there. Uh, and you can just go to change.org and find that, uh, just, you know, searching for Walt Whitman. Uh, the Walt Whitman Initiative, of course, has its own website, waltwhitmaninitiative.org, and you can read all about our multi-year campaign to try to get this house landmarked. We, as uh, Raoul's organization, we've been turned down by the Landmarks Preservation Commission in 2017, but there is so much support for landmarking this house. And I, I must say that speaking now as a as a teacher and as a parent and as a New Yorker, uh, it is a lesson to stand in front of the house and and see where American poetry was born. Um, but I'm going to give Raul contact yep. time here too. Yes. Sorry, Raul. 
Ryan, how, how can people get in touch with Five Boroughs to Freedom and find out more about your organization? Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, number five, Boroughs to Freedom, the shorter spelling of boroughs. Um, I also um, I get my historical um, when I, I get my historical ideas out, I usually go on Twitter at Raul Dugu. So uh, I'm pretty active there. And I would love to make more friends over there, too. So, uh, well, great. Well, thank you both for being on the, on the special program. I wish you both the best of success in getting these two important buildings landmarked uh, and getting the, the Landmarks Preservation Commission to see the light. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's, it's actually shows like this that really help get the word out because, uh, as Raul knows too, it, it's just a matter of numbers. Yep. And I was in on the on the hearing, the public hearing for two twenty seven Duffield this morning too, and it was so moving to hear not just preservationists but regular people who catch wind of stuff like this on shows like yours, Jeff. Um, so, I think we're both really grateful for this conversation. Yeah. Well. This thank you. this this hour flyby, but I want to thank Karen for testifying today. I mean, we are all here oh, to support yeah. each other. We're and we're all yeah, this, it's this all is, in the family. About this stuff. And <laughs> it's nice to have you guys as allies. It really, really uh, makes me happy and warms my heart. Thank you. Well, well, thank you both for for being on the program. And we've just finished this week's exploration, specifically to the journey of two people who are trying to get some lesser-known buildings landmarked that are important in New York City's history and our culture. Uh, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can also like us on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's Jeff Goodman NYC. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Brad Vogel, who introduced me to a couple of the guests this evening, and who very much is here in spirit, even though he's on the Gowanus Canal tonight canoeing around. And uh, a special remembrance to Greg Trupiano, who was instrumental in putting together so much of appreciation for Fort Greene and Walt Whitman. Greg sadly departed this earth in February, and he is missed greatly. Uh, one more thing before we sign off. I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the amazing Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for the program is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I am Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know. 
Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 